Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And look, after a long holiday weekend, we're finally hearing from more Republicans who are calling out the former president for his dinner that happened last week with Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes and rapper Kanye West. President Trump was wrong uh, uh, to give a a white nationalist, uh, uh, an anti-Semite, and a Holocaust denier a seat at the table. And uh, I think he should apologize for it. Uh, and he should denounce those individuals uh, uh, and their hateful rhetoric without qualification. Mike Pence also saying tonight he doesn't believe the former president is a racist or a bigot. Totally doesn't, does make you wonder, though, about the company he's keeping, though, given his statements of condemnation that you just heard for President Trump. A white nationalist, a Holocaust denier, and the rapper formerly known as, or now known as Ye, fresh from his tweet saying that he's going to go death con three on Jewish people. Not sure what then qualifies for somebody to be called bigoted, but we'll wait and see, I guess, on that from Vice President Mike Pence. We've got more to come on this, plus the white shooter who killed 10 people in a supermarket in a mostly black neighborhood in Buffalo pleading guilty today. But the families of some of the men and women who were killed say that they think he was treated differently than, say, a black shooter would have been. Got a lot to talk about tonight. Joining me now is CNN political analyst Ashley Allison, also Kevin Madden, former top aide to the Mitt Romney presidential campaign, and CNN political analyst Alex Burns is here as well. Good to see you all here tonight. Look, there's been a bit of a pass that was given over the weekend. It was Thanksgiving, right? And we're not going to hear from any members of Congress. They're probably doing whatever we do when we're grateful at home and eating turkey. But now on Monday today, we are hearing things finally. We're hearing some condemnations. But I want to just sort of orient the discussion for a moment, because not everyone might know who Mr. Fuentes is and what he stands for. You hear the name and wonder, now, what could he possibly have said? Let me play for you a little bit of the clips he has, a little bit of a mashup of the kind of comments that this person who now had access to a former president of the United States was saying. We've got the white Christian men that built this country the first time, and we'll do it again. Do what must be done. Send the military into these black neighborhoods, make the streets safe. They'll complain about it. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're never going to vote for us. Who cares? You know, enough with the Jim Crow stuff. Who cares? Oh, no, they had to go to a different school. Their water fountain in that famous picture was worse. Who cares? Grow up. Now they're going on about Russia and Vladimir Putin is Hitler and they say that's not a good thing and <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> wow, he's so funny. He really is. Normally provocateurs don't interest me much because I really fair, feel or uh, fall for the sort of baits that they give. But in this instance, the fact that this is somebody who had an audience with somebody who's running for re-election is very concerning, don't you think? 
Absolutely. Um, but I'm not surprised. Donald Trump continues to show us who he is. And I do appreciate Vice, former Vice President Pence saying something. I wish he would have also said something as strong in Charlottesville when you had neo-Nazis marching through the streets, also saying anti-Semitic things. So the fact that you have someone who says they're running for president in 2024, who was the former leader of this country, sitting down with someone like Ye, who was problematic on many different, but like also why Ye? Like, you know, he has no political real analysis here. And an anti-Semite is troubling and we need to continue to pay attention to it because you cannot ignore this type of behavior. It allows it to continue to fester. What's new about this tonight, of course, is that the former vice president has spoken about this very issue. And you're right. He's been infamously mute on a number of issues, um, still never going all the way to distance himself completely from Donald Trump. The question is why? I mean, it, it's likely that he probably has aspirations to be a president of the United States. Whether that's a viable aspiration, we just don't know. But the idea that he's now coming around, Alex, and you have other top Republicans who are condemning his behavior and actually having an open conversation about it. In fact, here is Senator Thune and Cornyn and Ernst all talking about these issues. Senator Thune said, well, that's just a bad idea on every level. I don't know who's advising him on his staff, but I hope that whoever that person was got was got fired. Cornyn saying it's bad. There's no question about it. Joni Ernst saying it's ridiculous. That's all I'm going to say about it. Capito saying it's ridiculous. You would do something with someone who espouses those views. You've got people coming out and saying something about it. Even Senator Kramer at one point saying something from North Dakota. Here he is. Well, he, he should condemn any, those kinds of things that anybody, anybody would stand for, no matter who they are. Um, clearly, it's not our view. It's not my view. Uh, I, would, I don't think it's his view. Um, but as you know, President Trump doesn't, doesn't condemn uh, a lot of people who uh, support him. That's the part, Alex, that last sentence. He doesn't condemn a lot of people who support him. Is that the crux of this issue? Well, certainly, I think for former President Trump, it's, it's much of the crux of the issue. I think what's so important about what you're hearing from a handful of, uh, of these Republicans now, uh, Laura, first with Mike Pence, uh, he's not just sort of uh, uh, wrapping the former president on the wrist and, and moving on the way I think we've heard a lot of Republicans do over time. I do think that challenge to Trump that he ought to apologize mm. is an interesting and very, very deliberate uh, choice by Pence, right? That that advances uh, this conversation further. And I, you know, I don't think Pence is eager for sort of a long, drawn-out fight with Donald Trump. But it does mean that you know, it's not necessarily quite so easy to uh, just sort of you know, say your piece and move on and hope that the media cycle moves on uh, soon enough, too. I think more than anything, though, this is an indication of at least a sense among Republicans. And it's a pretty decent cross-section yeah. of the party. You're not just talking about your sort of never-Trump folks or folks who voted for uh, impeachment once or twice. Uh, you know, that he really is a politically weakened force. That, you know, why are you hearing uh, a Joni Ernst or a Kevin Kramer speaking so freely about what they see as the problems with Donald Trump? Well, they don't really see him necessarily as the guy who's running the show anymore. What do you but, think about but, that? But they're, they're not convinced of that yet. And that's mm. the thing that is annoying to me is that they're still doing this in such an incremental way. Mm -hmm. 
And they're doing it with these little glancing blows. And then they're sort of checking the temperature and seeing, am I getting any blowback from the Republican base? Are they? Or the base activists? They don't know yet. And we don't know. But you know what? That's not the right question to ask. I think the main question that we should be asking is, is sitting down with somebody like Nick Fuentes disqualifying? The answer on that is emphatically yes. It's a disqualifying act to sit with somebody with those views. You should not be able to be the head of a major political party or president of the United States. And that should be the question that they're asking. And quite frankly, I'd be saying it rhetorically. I, I would ask myself that question as, a, as an elected member or a leader in the party. And I would answer it emphatically. He is not qualified to be president because of this. Now, of course, think about the long list of things, right, that people have tried to disqualify Trump on the basis of. And the list is, is pretty long. You heard Congressman Liz Cheney um, very intent on disqualification tied to the January 6th insurrection, for example. But the notion here... and. And I, I don't want to give him necessarily an olive branch in this, but his statements have been, President Trump, has been that, look, I don't always know who I'm sitting with. You know, Kanye brought some people with him, which gives me security questions about the people who you don't know who's coming around, the former president of the United States. I wonder if the Obamas or Clinton or tell Jimmy Carter for that like are saying, I, I don't know, who, no. who comes and has a it's... meal with me these days? That's kind of a cop out. But that's what his statement has been. Yeah, but he does cop outs all the time. When you are the president of the United States or the former president, especially the, the most immediate former president, you know who you are sitting down with. There is vetting that is supposed to be happening. Now, it might not actually happen in the Trump um, ecosystem it, it because it they, right. don't, they don't they actually don't. have any protocols, it seems like. But what I will say Wait, to does you... That ex- does that excuse it, though, to you? No, it doesn't, no, okay. because you well, have a responsibility have as... Is- but you have a responsibility as a leader. And the thing that I think I really agree with you is... Why are they doing this now? Mm. Pence wants to be in the news cycle just as much as Donald Trump wants to be. Because, you know, he might not want this to go on forever, but he will bring it up on a presidential debate stage. But Alex's point, excuse me, Alex's point was in part, what I think is really interesting that you are making, is the idea of Pence's statement this time around requires a response. And the absence of a response in terms of the absence of an apology is in itself a response or a refusal to acknowledge something, is that my... And again, it's, it's a glancing blow, right. but that point, is that intentional, you think, by Pence in terms of getting a response and wanting one, or actually he'll get one? Well, look, I don't think there's anything that Mike Pence says about Donald Trump that's not incredibly intentional, and I think that's been true <laughs> uh, for quite some time. But look, to Kevin's point, you know, until you have leaders of the Republican Party out there driving the message that this guy's not qualified to be president, that he should be seen as having taken himself out of consideration. You know, there's no mechanism to disqualify somebody from seeking public office just because their views are abhorrent and their character uh, is deficient. That's about driving a message that persuades voters uh, to see things that way, right? And until you have folks on the right you know, not just dipping their toe in the water to say, you know, let's see how the base is going to react to this, but really taking the situation in hand and saying, it is my mission to make sure the base believes that this guy is disqualified. You're just going to see round after round of this. And I do just think in terms of the the, the sort of cop-out after cop-out, how many times has Donald Trump like accidentally had dinner with a left-wing radical, but, right? But, like, but when you, does that ever happen? What you just <laughs> mentioned, though, is the biggest tactical Wait, problem, is that here we are again, Donald Trump picking, uh, driving the news cycle and everybody else reacting to it. If you want to be the 2024 nominee inside the Republican Party and you're not Donald Trump, you have to get out of this vicious cycle of, of just responding every single day to some Donald Trump controversy. 
And that's the thing that I found interesting about the last three days is this is like 2016, 2020. Redux is everybody reacting and responding to the Donald Trump news cycle that was started and initiated by Donald Trump. But it is, and I want to play this one last clip because it's from um, Governor Reelect, Governor again, Brian Kemp. And I do sense a bit of a change. In 2016, people were chasing the headline that was Donald Trump and 17 and 18, and I can go on for all the years it's happened. But there seems to be a little bit more freedom people actually being able to say something, at least to condemn even initially. Maybe they pull it back. But here was Governor Kemp just today about this very issue. That was a bad decision. There's no place for that in the Republican Party. I know he's got, uh, you know, his answer to that question, and I'll let him speak to that. But my views on that are, are very clear. Now, of course, his views on that might be very clear because he's not, uh, you know, in the good graces of Donald Trump. It has a little bit more freedom, perhaps, down in Georgia, but we will see how it all pans out. Stick around, everyone, because as you can imagine, this country is reeling from one mass shooting after another. And tonight, the gunman who killed 10 human beings in a racist mass shooting in a Buffalo supermarket in a mostly black neighborhood today has pleaded guilty. The fact with some of those victims, they are not happy about this. We'll tell you why next. Well, the gunman in that horrific racist mass shooting at a Buffalo grocery store that happened in May, pleading guilty to the state charges today. 19-year-old Peyton Gendron pleading guilty to one count of domestic terrorism motivated by hate, 10 counts of first-degree murder, three counts of attempted murder, and a weapons possession charge. His plea now ensures there will be no state-level trial, but he does still face federal charges, which he's obviously already pleaded not guilty to at this point. Now, some of the victim's family members expressed some frustration with the outcome today, calling out the system that we have for being overly sympathetic towards the gunman. His voice showed me, made me feel sick. This country is inherently violent. It is racist. And his voice showed that to me today because he didn't care. He didn't even feel, you couldn't hear him in his voice. He was just a robot. So in court today, a lot of anger, anger was uh, over my body. I was angry how to judge was constantly talking to this to this gentleman like he was a little prepubescent sixth grade boy. I was angry that they didn't have him look at the faces of the family's victims that he ruined and scarred for life. Let's think about why he was taken into custody when others can have their hands up and they're not taken into custody. They end up on the ground with bullets in them. Mm. My mother had bullets in her. I did not know Attorney Crump, I did not know the full extent until I came here today. Mm. Back with you now, Ashley Allison and Kevin Madden, also seen in legal analyst Norm Eisen is joining us as well. I mean, Norm, when you look at this, and again, you keep emphasizing state charges versus federal charges. We know full well, of course, that federal can often be that backstop for sometimes failed state level charges. But just the idea of the anger and the frustration of the families. You have been a defense counsel. I, a prosecutor, we've been in these courtrooms and seen the frustrations of so many. What's your reaction? 
Well, and Laura, I've worked death penalty cases defending um, those who are accused of these heinous crimes. And my first reaction is not as a lawyer. It's a human one. And my heart is breaking for these families. There is nothing that can bring back the precious lives that were lost or, or ever fully heal those scars. That's a scar that never heals. I do think that uh, killing uh, Gendron uh, for the terrible things he did, and this is not, doesn't seem to be a case where you say, oh, it's a crazy man. This is a stone cold killer. He made up his mind and he did it on racist grounds. Still, life in prison uh, is a severe penalty for that. Killing him is not going to heal those wounds. Those victims, the families, will have a chance to appear in court and talk. And I think as a nation, I return to the question of he, he legally bought a gun. He illegally modified it. We need to make it much more difficult. If you look at the statistics, the last thing I'll say, if you look at the statistics internationally or even in the United States where it's easier and more difficult to get guns to do these kinds of modifications, where it's more difficult, there are many fewer mass killings. We must address this as a society to prevent this horrible pain that we're seeing in Buffalo. I mean, and, and Ashley, thinking about this, and you know, just and Norm's right, the human element of this, um, the pain, and this is on the backdrop of how many mass shootings have occurred even since this happened in May. It is horrific that we are still, re- I have reported on so many, as we all have in our time. But he is right that there will be a time for a sentencing opportunity where you have victims' impact statements to come and talk. I found interesting, part of the frustration of the families was that they wanted to be able, through a trial, to have information come out, knowing there's a spotlight on what's happened, wanting to address all the evidence, just the thematic way that he sought out this particular community based on demographics, Mm -hmm. based on the intersection of race and income and geography. There was an intersectional story here to be told. Yeah, I mean, I am just like Norm, and I'm sure everyone here and everyone watching it, I go back to that day when we heard about the shooting in Buffalo, and as a Black American, it hit differently. I mean, there are many shootings, but this one hit home. And um, you never want to tell a victim's family how they should feel like justice should be served, because I think you can never fully empathize until you're in somebody's shoes. Mm -hmm. Um, I am not a supporter of the death penalty, but that doesn't mean that that shouldn't be what those, if that's what the family wanted, should be able to have that. But I also think what you heard was the racial implication that they felt like this was system was unjust, that they felt like if this was a black shooter, that he might not even have the chance to plead guilty because he might've been dead. Mm. If, um, they might have had more transparency. It sounds like they're just learning things today and they need that transparency for closure. To Norm's point, I do think that there are some measures we can take around assault weapons, but there also are some things on monitoring without invading privacy about chat rooms that people were in on social media platforms where he was clearly espousing some of this hate and his intent. And that should be addressed as well. well let's be clear on one. Th- and I again, I, I agree with you. I would not um, dare to suppose I knew what justice looked like for a family member. At the state level in New York, the death penalty was not an option. It was a life without possibility of parole. 
but their federal charges could possibly bring that about. There isn't a moratorium right now on death penalty cases. Actually, Attorney General Merrick Garland talked about not being a supporter of death penalty in spite of his Oklahoma City bombing past as well and prosecuting that case. But I, I can't help but look at these cases, Kevin, on the backdrop of we see what happens when families don't believe that because a trial has not taken place, there's not the semblance of justice in some parts. Meanwhile, here in Washington, D.C., we've got the Oath Keepers trials going on. For many, it's clear as maybe mud, maybe as day, depending upon your viewpoint, about the evidence before the jury. In Washington, D.C., the jury is still deliberating. And many look at this and say, well, what could be taking so long? I thought there were all these discussions about an expedited result. What do you make of the fact that the Oath Keepers trial, as of right now, we're on verdict watch, right. has not yet <clears throat> rendered a verdict? Well, without going into any of the details of that, because there are a lot of details involved, and there's a lot of evidence involved, I think one of the big challenges here about both of these uh, cases is that we oftentimes have them driven on a public policy conversation or a political conversation or a larger sort of conversation in society. They're oftentimes driven just by events. And so many of the questions and problems that we face in the, in the day-to-day man, uh, management of the, of the judicial system and the legal system, things like equity, things like fairness, so much of that has a conversation that can't take place just around one event. We remember Buffalo happened, then Uvalde happened, then we finally saw some policy action. But the conversations and the address, the, you know, addressing these issues that go, are very deeply rooted problems in, in the system and in, in society – um, those conversations have to be ongoing beyond any trial, beyond any one event that becomes newsworthy that everybody then turns the cameras on and reporters show up. That conversation probably has to be much more methodical and much more uh, systemic. We are a very reactive nation when it comes to policy, right? That's one of the complaints. We, we often hear about discussions about, say, gun control when a mass shooting occurs and not the sustained conversation. Before we go to break, I'm curious, Norm, from your perspective, are you surprised we haven't yet gotten a verdict in the Oath Keepers trial? No. It's Mm. two days. They had one before the holiday. Now they've had a second day. They sent a note out of the jury today. It wasn't a good note for the prosecution, I'll tell you that. It wasn't a terrible (laughs) note. They wanted to understand what prevent, hinder, or delay. As you know, in this case, seditious conspiracies has to be an agreement to prevent, hinder, delay the execution of any law of the United States by force. And they wanted to understand how that related to laws governing the transfer of presidential power. And Judge Maida, when he was a lawyer, we practiced together in the firm. Judge Maida sent back an instruction how the two interacted, that they're going to have to find an agreement to interfere with the transfer of power by force. I think there's a lot of evidence of that. I represent the DCAG in a civil case against these militias. I know these are not easy cases, and I appreciate that the jury is taking their time, but come on. We tried a bunch of cases. The jury was out longer than two days. The jury sent multiple notes, and then they convicted in the end. So I think the evidence is strong. My jury's really liked me and Justice, so I got to tell you, I'm just making, I'm making, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It was always beyond a reasonable doubt, nothing to do with Laura Coates. My jury's ruled for me in spite of my not being as likable as Laura Coates. (laughs) They still ruled for me. Copycock. You you are, but I will say, from a prosecutor's perspective, if I have a jury who's asking questions about clarifying a definition that was the meat of my case, Mm -hmm. 
I'm worried about what I may have faltered on. But we will see. And everyone, Norm Eisen is extraordinarily likable. In court and out. So there you go. Look at the smile. You see it right there. I hope my family is watching. <laughs> They're not. My kids are. No one watches me either in my family. It's fine. I'm not personal. Look, but we are just eight days away from what everyone is watching. And it's a critical Senate runoff in the state of Georgia. And now we're learning the former president, Donald Trump, he's not going to appear to campaign for Herschel Walker in Georgia. Plus, Lava is flowing down the largest active volcano in the world. I'll talk to one of Hawaii's top officials about whether the people there are at risk. Wow. Georgia Senate runoff is really heating up tonight. We're entering the final week of the contest between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. And thousands, and I do mean thousands and thousands of voters, have already cast their ballots, more than 300,000 as of today, which blows up the old record of 233,000. So very motivated voters here. That's according to the Georgia election official, Gabe Sterling. Back with me now, Ashley Allison, Kevin Madden, and Alex Burns returns as well. I want to play for you this, this part because Governor Kemp, I think, really encapsulates exactly why there has been the turnout and why he is still promoting and endorsing Herschel Walker. Let's listen to what he has to say about why you should vote here and now. We cannot rest on our laurels, everyone. You're going to decide who our senator is. This is going to be a turnout election. Who's more motivated? Is it them or us? Not a whole lot about Herschel Walker's campaign oh, platform, too, right? A lot of platitudes like, turn out. Turn out. Who's going to do it? Who's That's more excited? <laughs> That's the crux of it, right? That's yeah. what he's saying. Yeah. The amazing thing about this race right now, it's been three weeks, right? we got mm-hmm. one more week to go. It has been an extension of what we saw for the last eight months. Mm. It's just the same messages. It's the same tactics with the same two candidates spending money on ads. That's really all it is. Not much has changed in the last three weeks. Fifty million. I mean, like fifty million dollars worth million of ads. Dollars, about by fifty-seven the way. million dollars. Right Democrats now. higher than I think it's thirty-seven point four million for Democrats, twenty point two million for Republicans. But I don't know. There seems to be a different sort of taste in terms of the ads that are being run. For a long time, Senator Raphael Warnock was criticized for not being more um, attack, attacking of Herschel Walker. People wondered why he wasn't going to talk more about the abortion-related scandals and whatnot. Now he has this, this commercial out, which I, I saw and kind of chuckled at because that was the conversation people were having. They would show you a video of what Herschel Walker had to say, and they'd go, what's your reaction to it? He kind of honed in on that in a little bit more of a tactful way, but here it is. You ever watch a stupid movie late at night hoping it's going to get better, don't get better, but you keep watching it anyway? Because the other night, the other night I was watching this movie, I was watching this movie called Fright Night, Freak Night, or some type of night, but it was about vampires. I don't know if you know vampires are cool people. What the hell is he talking about? <laughs> is he serious? Is he for real? But I'm going to tell you something that I found out. A werewolf could kill a vampire. Did you know what is he talking about? That was the question many were asking about that very clip, Alex. Is this the approach he ought to take in terms of 
Senator Warnock? Well, first of all, let's give Herschel Walker credit where due. I didn't know that uh, about werewolves. <laughs> That's new information for me. Uh, well, look, no. Are I, you a Georgia voter? Because he would want to know that, too. I, I, I'm not. But <laughs> look, uh, you know, far be it for me to, to, to sort of tell Brian Kemp how to win an election in Georgia. He just had a very convincing uh, victory. But what we heard him say in that ad is not quite true. The fact that he said this is a turnout election. It's about, you know, does our side show up or does their side show up? What? Brian Kemp and Raphael Warnock showed in the midterm elections is that that is a persuasion game also in Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. That you had many thousands of people turn out to vote in this November election and cast their ballot for a Republican governor and for a Democratic senator. And what Herschel Walker badly needs to happen in the runoff is that a lot of those people who split their ballots either switch back to just voting straight ticket Republican, meaning only for him this time, or they just stay home and that not that many people show up. It doesn't really look like from the early vote that, you know, folks just staying home is a great bet on this one. But you don't, you know, what you what you see in that is Herschel Walker trying to get to those Republicans who rejected him last time because they think he says outlandish stuff, because they th- yeah. think he's a person of uh, low character, and just say, listen, man, just like, just vote for the team this time. I think what um, Kemp was talking about also is, we call that like a persuasion turnout, that you have to convince people to actually go and vote. Um, some people call it get out the vote. Um, I thought that ad that the Warnock team put out was spot on, hilarious. I watched it five times today. And there was one part when they were like, he was talking about air and he's like, the guy's like, it's all the same air. You know, you just, somebody needed to name a thing. And it's like, what is he talking about all the time? Like every time he speaks, he says something in his speech and you're like, what is he saying? Am, am I, is something going on with me? Am I missing the point? And now you, his own party knows that because every time he goes out, he has chaperones and they, you know, cause they want to clean up if he says something crazy, which he did most recently. Um, I'm not going to say what he said, but he definitely said something inappropriate about oh, the election. What, what a cliffhanger. I'll leave it alone. That's fine. I'll, I'll, I'm not going to say it, but go Google it right now. You'll see yourself. But you know what? It's not just um, Reverend Warnock who was doing this. Walker's hitting back. I mean, he has an ad out as well because there, you know, there were questions that were raised about a comment that Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock made about one's character is what you have when no one's looking. Listen to this. Character is what you do when nobody's watching. Mm-hmm. And Warnock thought no one was watching when his ex-wife called police to report his abuse. And he's a great actor. And Warnock thought no one was watching when he evicted poor people from their homes. Is that effective, Kevin? It's, you know, it's the same ads that were running in the general election um, that we saw three weeks ago. It's the same thing. And I really do think in many ways they're canceling each other out. One of the reasons that I think Warnock has an edge in this race is... Republican turnout is going to be deflated knowing that they can't really have they don't really have a a mantle to grab onto with the majority, given that the Democrats are still going to be in the majority. So I think that the deflated turnout there and the fact that this thing is all going to be about whether or not you can win the suburbs and Warnock was winning the suburbs of Atlanta uh, and even ran ahead of 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 Stacey Abrams in the suburbs. You know, I think he gets the edge. So it's it, not much has changed, and I think that leaves the edge with Warnock. It's you know, it makes a great point because maybe had this been a number that got you say closer to the filibuster being able to be done away with, that's a little bit more enticing than just eh, you got one more um, seat filled. Having said that, I don't think we're really a meh electorate, but we'll see what actually comes out here in places like Georgia.
Well, look, everyone, let's turn the tables to the world's largest active volcano because it is erupting for the first time in nearly four decades. And that just one, now a second volcano, is erupting on the, the big island. The camera. There's a really rare event happening in Hawaii tonight. You've got dueling, dueling eruptions from two active volcanoes on the big island. For the first time in nearly 40 years, Mauna Loa, the world's largest active volcano, is sending molten hot lava streaming down the side of the mountain. It began late Sunday night. And right now, there are, there's lava, it's likely to stay in what's known as Mauna Loa's Northeast Rift Zone, according to officials, and pose very little threat to residents, at least for the time being, and I hope that remains the case. Also, nearby Kilauea is the other volcano that's now erupting about 21 miles away from Mauna Loa. Now, Kilauea eruption um, in 2018, that destroyed more than 700 homes. Joining me now, Hawaii's governor-elect and current Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. Lieutenant Governor, Governor-elect, I'll refer to you as both. You got both the titles right now. It's nice to see you, but we're learning a lot about what's happening down in Hawaii right now. I mean, right now, I'm wondering, is there a big risk to the residents of the areas? I mean, two erupting volcanoes? It's crazy. Uh, it is crazy. Uh but there's not a threat to our people right now, thank goodness. It's interesting, this is the uh, area where I took care of patients as a physician when I first came to Hawaii. And we are a vulnerable community all the way out here in Hawaii. We've had so many different storms and disasters. You described Kilauea erupting, which was in 2018. And then now Mauna Loa, which it's been a long time. It's been about 40 years since Mauna Loa erupted. But because it's going through the Northeast Rift Zone, uh, that is a better way for the lava to flow. It goes into a flatter area. The lava becomes quite viscous, and it tends to slow down before it gets anywhere near our people, which would be Hilo. Hilo's the largest town on Big Island, and it's where my in-laws live. We just are getting uh, a little nervous from time to time, but it's at least a week away, and we're hopeful that it won't make it all the way to the town. Wow, the idea of what that would be like, the prospect, and thinking about the time. But as a physician, I, I'm curious... Although the lava might not present this immediate or urgent threat, I'm wondering about the air quality posed by the volcanic ash that might be in the air. I understand it's, it's pretty minimal, but that could have an impact on somebody who had respiratory conditions or it might actually complicate or create them. Is that right? That is true. Uh, right now, there's more hot air coming out of the Georgia special election, frankly, uh, than there is out of the <laughs> volcano. But I will tell you, uh, it's not without consequence here. We do have a thing called bog. That's volcanic smog, and that does irritate people's lungs. We did some research on that, and people are about twice as likely to have asthma exacerbations or a problem with their COPD when the volcanoes go off. Also, there's a thing called Pele's glass or Pele's hair, which is shards of volcanic ash, and the, um, the carbon forms into like a glass-like fiber, and people can breathe that in. But right now, it's been very minimal. It's been safe. We're encouraging people to wear masks if they're concerned. We have our Department of Health on it. We're monitoring air quality. So there's no worries about traveling to Hawaii. There's no worries about being in Hawaii on Big Island. But it's a, uh, it's a concern always. We worry about all these things. 
So, I mean, I wonder how you prepare. Obviously, with certain natural disasters for a hurricane, for example, people are more familiar with what when, what happens there. Is there a way to prepare? Because I think the U.S. Geological Survey um, had reported earlier in the summer that there had been some seismic activity near at least Mauna Loa. Is there a way to prepare, or is it really a wait-and-see approach that must be taken? We do monitor things constantly. There were a lot of earthquakes, so we knew it was coming. Uh, we stratify risk. We do a lot of science here in Hawaii. As you saw, when we dealt with COVID, we use science. We had good results. With the volcanoes, we use science. We get people prepared. If we had gone the other direction, if the lava had actually broken through uh, to the other side, away from the northeast, you know, into the southwest, it's more worrisome because you can't predict where these lava flows will go. And then it goes downhill really quickly towards Kona and Kau, which are the other areas of the Big Island. That would have been more disconcerting. Also, whenever we have earthquakes, we have some concern about the shelf moving. That can cause things like a tsunami if the shelf moves into the ocean. I know a lot of this freaks people on the mainland out, but look, these are very rare instances. We follow them carefully with our geology folks, and we're okay. But we appreciate all the concern because we know everyone loves Hawaii, and mm. you know these are pretty unusual things. You don't see this in the mainland. We certainly do not. We're thinking of everyone out there, and it's hard not to fall in love with a place like Hawaii. So we wish you the best out there as well. Lieutenant Governor, Governor-elect Josh Green, thank you for taking the time to be here today. We'll follow along. Hey, thanks for worrying about us. We care about you guys, too. Thank you. Well, Jay Leno, everyone, he is returning to the stage, and he is cracking some jokes, although probably not as good as the governor-elect just did about Georgia. But we'll give Jay Leno more credit as well. The comedian is back at it just two weeks after suffering some serious burns from a gasoline fire. So what did he find funny about it? We'll tell you next. Jay Leno making his return to the comedy stage over the weekend after suffering major burns in a garage accident just two weeks ago. Here he is, cracking jokes, arriving at the club. Hey, how's it feel to be back on the stage? Uh, the elephant man is here. <laughs> how's it feel to be back? I'm not on stage yet. Got here. Back with me, Ashley Allison, Kevin Madden, Norm Eisen. We were all pretty worried about how he'd be doing. I mean, these are serious burns. It was shocking that it happened to him. Good to see him back out there. Yeah, I mean, and I love Jay Leno. Mm-hmm. I think he, you know, I'd love to watch his show. Very excited to have him back. And I was particularly worried because the burns were on his face and he has such an iconic face. You know, it's like the most famous chin and show. Business, yeah. Right? And, you know, just to see him back and be in good spirits. It's it's he's a workhorse, too. I mean, he, yeah. he used to go out on the road even when he was the host of The Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the comedy club circuit is in his blood. So it's really great to see him doing what he loves. And how fantastic on a day with some very heavy news yeah. to have. Uh, Jane, Jay Leno back and, and showing us the role of humor in lifting up his own spirits and all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just was a bit of good news that we needed. It, and we need to have more of it. I'm glad to see him out there. And of course, what was not a laughing matter to some people, um, Bob Dylan, he tried to make his life easier by essentially using some kind of an auto pen to sign limited edition copies of his book. And you had super fans who were comparing online and thought, hold on, this looks exactly the same. Turns out 
that they indeed were some replication. And I, I, of course, have a book with um, Simon & Schuster, his same company as well and same publisher, so I won't really say too much more about my best-selling book. Norm Eisen, <laughs> let's talk about yours, though, um, on this notion, because he was trying to cut corners a little bit, yeah. but it is Bob Dylan. The, the, the value of my books actually goes down. <laughs> so I, it is not the Bob Dylan situation, but we, here's what I will say, Laura. You started the show on the call for Trump to apologize. And yeah. we all know Donald Trump will not apologize if Pence asks him a hundred times. Bob Dylan apologized. He made a mistake. He had vertigo. He used the auto pen. He said he was sorry. They're sending money back to the fans. Again, that's what we need to see. You make a mistake, apologize. I'll give him credit for apologizing. Um, I mean, I hate that they, they, sometimes they only apologize when they get caught on things like this, but uh, I do give him credit for that. I guess I'm too cynical. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Are you a Dylan? Are you a Dylan fan? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just not surprised yeah. that they would be, uh, you know, so many people huh. use the auto pen to do their signatures. I mean, it's because you spend too I, much time in government you, service, no, actually. I have, they I, no, all I, use I, the office. Do you think anybody's I comparing have, yours? I have a poster that, for my birthday, went and Diana Ryle signed it. And I bought it. I didn't see her sign it. And my heart, I believe it's her signature. But if it's not, I'm not going to hate Diana. Um, excuse me. Diana Ross would never lie. And she's perfect. We will stop right there. <laughs> I agree. I can't we're believe Ron Gidget didn't sign much better my we're, we're moving, we're moving on. You know, I, you know I love Diana Ross. I mean, she's saying about my that. favorite. She's mine, and I love her. So thank you very much. Coming up next, rare protests in China over the country's zero COVID policy, anger in Iran over suppression by the Iranian regime. So how does the World Cup tie into all of this? We'll talk about that next. As you well know, protesting is a fundamental right, at least in this country. We may not all agree about how it's done, of course, and sometimes it can certainly get out of hand or be hijacked. But it's everyone's right in this country. But that's not the case in so many other countries right now, like in China, where thousands of people are risking their lives, protesting the government's oppressive zero-COVID policy and what may be the most widespread demonstration since Tiananmen Square in 1989. People are chanting, we want freedom. Many, and very poignantly, are holding blank sheets of paper. Their way of subtly protesting without being accused of writing or displaying messages deemed illegal by their own government. And in Iran, hundreds of people have been killed amid the regime's brutal crackdown against peaceful protesters. Brave Iranians have been talking and taking to the streets for more than two months now, demanding freedom and women's rights in one of the most significant and consequential challenges to the Islamic Republic since at least the 1979 revolution. And what does all of what I've just described have to do with the World Cup? Well, we're going to talk about it. I want to bring in CNN Global Affairs analyst Susan Glasser, CNN politics reporter and editor-at-large Chris Saliza, and sports analyst Christine Brennan. I'm glad that you're all here and looking at this. And I have to just say, when I first saw the blank pieces of paper, for some reason that was so impactful and really touched me. And thinking about 
in some instances, the luxury that we take for granted mm. of being able to redress grievances and speak truth to power. And just to have this image of people holding it up as this silent and voiceless, oppressed population, it meant something. What did you think of it? You, you know, I'm so glad that you brought that up, Laura, because I've been thinking about that all day. It, it's, 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 it's a brilliant symbol of protest and sadly one that's become almost universal in our time because you know actually there was someone who was literally dragged uh away from red square by uh the authorities earlier this year protesting russia's uh uh illegal invasion of ukraine what was he doing he was holding up a blank piece of paper uh in fact in hong kong in the protests where there were thousands and thousands of people in the streets uh you know before right before the covid pandemic same thing the blank piece of paper and so i feel like it's become this sort of new universal gesture and it really it speaks to uh you know this sort of orwellian moment that we're Mm. living in, doesn't it? It really does. I'm struck by it, and I'm thinking of it uh, as it relates to Iran and the World Cup and the controversy over taking the the, the symbol off of the flag and the social media post and what that's caused. We have a comparison for yeah. people who haven't seen the, the original flag compared to what was actually cha- changed by, the, by U.S. soccer. Go ahead. And I would just recommend to people a book that is not new but is really fitting for this moment called How Soccer Explains the World by Frank Four, who is now at The Atlantic. Um, it's a fascinating book that talks about how soccer and the DNA of soccer uh, uh, sort of prefigures what kind of country they are. The Germans play an orderly, industrious manner of soccer. The Brazilians play a all loose uh, Jogo Benito, sort of the beautiful game. That's where that originated. And you know, I, you can't think of the images coming out of Iran and China without thinking, uh, to me, of the Iran-U.S. game tomorrow. Mm. That is a lot more than just a game. I mean, that's, I think, part of the World Cup and the appeal is that it's it's not just a game. It means more than that. It does. And, Christine, on that point, I mean, we can think back to, I think it was 1998, right, when you had mm. Iran play the U.S. soccer team. And there was this infamous moment where, obviously, nations at, in, at, with tension and there was a handing over of white roses yeah. from the Iranian soccer team to the American um, players as a moment of trying to bridge and give some peace. And now where we are again, now you've got, just as we got last night, calls for the U.S. to be suspended, thrown out of the World Cup because of something that the players did not do. Yep. What did you make of that? This is in keeping, in my opinion, with what U.S. soccer and the U.S. men's national soccer team has been doing ever since the World Cup began, which is much more than just soccer. Mm. These are young men, the U.S. men's national team. They're Title IX males. They're the ones who a few months ago actually gave up some money so that the women's team, obviously more famous, more successful, could actually have equal pay. So these are very different young men. They're not like their dads or their grandfathers. And they are very comfortable talking about these issues while they're also playing the game that they love. U.S. soccer, for example, has a rainbow shield. The red, white, and blue is on the uniform. But the rainbow shield, in honor, of course, of LGBTQ rights, a very big issue in Qatar, the host nation, that is being displayed in the team hotel, Laura, and at team parties and other things like that. So the U.S. national men's national team, U.S. soccer, have really from the get-go, have wanted this to be about more than soccer. Obviously, now it is it is a big controversy. No one's kicking the United States out of the World Cup. No. FIFA needs the United States and those TV ratings. But it does present an incredible tableau, 
on which to play a soccer game tomorrow. And there was a fascinating piece, I think it was in the Washington Post, um, an op-ed that was written about the idea of because it's more than just a game, um, the author was talking about how he was very pro the U.S. team, wanted the U.S. to win, Mm -hmm. but wanted Iran to be able to stay and play because every time they were playing... There was a conversation, Susan, about what was going on in Iran, about the protests, about women, and many of them were very young and teenagers fighting for their very lives and fighting for the opportunity to be even contemplated as equal. And so just interesting thinking about that dynamic at play. Well, that's right. This is a platform. And because this is the World Cup captivates so many millions of people around the world, of course, it's a stage that's irresistible for people who have a cause. It's really struck to connect the China and Iran conversation that they're reporting of China even censoring images coming out of the World Cup games mm-hmm. to, so that the people in China who are literally locked down in their apartment blocks uh, now in the third year of this pandemic wouldn't see images of unmasked fans. Uh, and, you know, again, the, the altering of reality to shape your uh, authoritarian political uh, environment and can you use this moment to punch through tomorrow? I think that Iran-U.S. game will be something like that. I did notice today uh, that White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain is on the record as predicting it's going to be a 4-1 outcome. Wow, that's that's bold. Like that's bold. heavy score. I don't know. Chris is the expert on this, but uh, that seems like is, a lot of goals. I will it? say this is like my dream segment. Like, <laughs> Come on CNN and talk about soccer. I was like, wait, seriously? When I talked to the booker, I was like, is this a, is this a prank we for even, my friends? We even made the Ted Lasso biscuits for you. The uh, right oh, really? Excellent. No. <laughs> um, I just wanted, the, the other thing I think that is important to mention here is just the setting of where the World Cup is happening. Qatar, right? Mm-hmm. And, and its rights record. And Christine touched on this. It's, uh, its views on homosexuality. I think anytime we can have that conversation when the eyes of the world are on it, it's impactful and it's important. And I think we shouldn't lose that either. The, you know, the setting of this whole thing matters too. Right. And the setting of this whole thing is political. I mean, you know, people say, oh, I want my sports, no politics. Well, the so, treatment sorry. of, yeah, that's of migrant not how workers, works. the treatment of migrant workers yes. who actually built the stadium as well, and reports of you know loss of life and 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 going on, and it just and I want to just underscore this point that was raised here because it's not a light thing to think about what's happening, the protests in China, the the yeah. idea of being so frustrated and exhausted about the zero COVID policy. There's a loss of life. An apartment building was caught on fire because of the lockdown provisions. The First response couldn't get to people in time to save their lives. And now you've got this international stage event. And the idea that they're seeing, well, hold on. We're being told one thing in China, but there's a largely maskless audience right now that they can't reconcile. Well, exactly. And how about go back nine months, the Olympics in China. I was in Beijing for a month. And so to see what Beijing was able to pull off, it was, of course, this uh, COVID zone that that, uh, literally closed loop the COVID tests every day down our throat. I mean, if you if you did test positive, a journalist or athletes, and a few, unfortunately, mm-hmm. the athletes did, you would go into quarantine somewhere. They didn't, the one athlete didn't even know where he was. Yeah. And so <laughs> China was in the news then, the point you made a few moments ago about the spotlight shining on these places, yep. especially in sporting events, these huge international sporting events, the human rights issues in China, we brought them up all the time. Uh, there's the positive in the negative, right? It's such a terrible thing that Beijing was hosting another Olympics, but the positive was the world got a chance yep. to discuss those Although issues. Although it is important to note that it, it tells you something about, uh, you know, uh, 
the way in which these uh, decisions are made yeah. by these international <laughs> organizations. Why on earth is this event it, in Qatar right now, which is, yes. you know, so, I mean, it's just the questions around the governance of these international uh, sports associations. Why is Beijing, why, and Russia, you know, being given Olympics again and again. And the World Cup. And the World Cup. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, and it doesn't have to do with Not it is only money, money but using yes. it as a showcase for the Potemkin version of yes. your country has such a long established thing. And, you know, it, politics is embedded in this. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, we've been giving the stage. Uh, and our athletes and our, you know, money and our corporations have been participating and, you know, puffing up, uh, you know, these authoritarian countries. And then we're shocked to discover well, that there's human rights forward, abuses though, there, right? The next World Cup, Men's World yeah. Cup, will be the United yeah. States, yeah. Mexico yeah. and Canada. And the Olympics now, the Summer Olympics will be Paris in 2024 and Los Angeles in that's 2028. Well, so at least there's a little, little hope little there. Hope. Well, that's good news. And unfortunately, speaking of politics and having the forum and the platform and to do good, I do have some sad breaking news to report tonight. Congressman Donald McEachin of Virginia has passed away at the age of just 61 after a years-long battle with cancer. That, according to a statement from his own office, saying that he fought colorectal cancer since 2013. McEachin was first elected to, the, to represent the 4th Congressional District of Virginia in the U.S. House on November 8, 2016, according to his House biography. He is survived by his wife, Colette, and three adult children. We'll be right back. Tonight, some Republicans are criticizing former President Trump for having dinner at Mar-a-Lago with Nick Fuentes, a white nationalist and Holocaust denier. Interesting, given that a whole lot of members of the former president's party have been, shall we say, reluctant over the last few years to call out many of his misdeeds and his, well, here's a phrase for you, constant gaslighting. Now, that word, I said, gaslighting, coincidentally, Merriam-Webster has chosen that word, gaslighting, have I said it enough, as its word of the year for 2022, defining it as the, quote, the act or practice of grossly misleading someone, especially for one's own advantage. Back with me now, Susan Glaser, Glasser and Chris Eliza, and we're also joined by CNN political commentator Karen Finney. Glad you're all here right now. First of all, I remember the Gaslight movie. I mean, I wasn't alive at the Gaslight movie came out. No, but I not even close. Thank you. Yes. I appreciate No that. one would think you were alive. I, you know what? A smart man. We'll start with you in the comments. Thank yes. you very much. But I remember watching this movie and thinking about the premise. And of course, when Angela Lansbury passed away, I remember her mm-hmm. role in it and thinking about this. But this idea, this being the top word, I had to go back because I have to say, a part of me, and here it is, a scene from it, um, a part of me was a little bit surprised that this is the first time it's been the most used. I went back and and found the other words of the year just from a random year, 2016, um, and going up to 2022. And you had surreal, Mm. was 2016, feminism, 2017, justice, 2018, they in 2019. You had pandemic in 2020, vaccine 2021. And here we are, gaslighting. I wonder from your examples, and think about this, have you all thought about sort of the big moments that you think, aha, this was gaslighting. This is the moment that really captures it. Smart man who said that Thank I was you. Not- Thank you so much, Laura. Please. <laughs> um, look, I went with a really obvious one, but Donald Trump in the 2020 election. Hmm. I mean, he continues. I'm on his email list. I don't know how I got on it, but I'm on his email list. 
repeatedly every day he sends things out still as a candidate for the 2024 presidential race, not as a former president, as a candidate for the 2024 presidential race, he sends things out about how the election was stolen. And not just the 2020 election. Now he's on to Maricopa County in Arizona. The thing that worries me about inherent in gaslighting is if one person is saying it, okay, and if one person believes it, not great, but okay. But we're talking about 50, 60% of the Republican Party who believes that the, Repu- the, the 2020 election, by all measures, which was a fair and free and fair election, was stolen. I mean, that's a massive gaslight that Donald Trump is, the foundation of his 2024 bid is being built on that. So I went a little obvious, but it, to me, it's the one that just jumped out. Oh, look, I think it's a good one. One of the ones I thought of was, you know, after Charlottesville, when he said good people on both sides. And there were lots yes. of people who tried to defend that position. And it does make you think, kind of going to the less obvious, racism and sexism in, gen- in general is a Ooh. form of gaslighting. I mean, think about when you I was watching a movie from the 70s and they were talking about women as the weaker sex and emotional. And I was like, yes, we were gaslit to believe yep. that about ourselves until we started to say, wait a second, I'm not crazy. You're crazy. <laughs> so. And of course, that point you raise, the idea, because remember, it's also about especially misleading someone for one's own advantage. So who does it benefit? Those who want you to believe to keep them in power. Susan, what's your thought? Well, that's right. What's the distinction between gaslighting and just plain old uh, lying? Yes. Uh, And I think when you talk about the 2020 election, Chris, you know, uh, when we went down to Mar-a-Lago to interview Donald Trump, you know, for our recent book, uh, he, he sat there, he looked us in the eye, and I expected him to say rigged election, rigged election, which he did. But I was really struck by this comment in particular as an example of gaslighting. He said, you know, the real insurrection at the Capitol wasn't on January 6th. It was on November 3rd. 2020. That was an insurrection, and January 6th was just a protest. To me, that's like taking the lie about the election and putting a spin on it and saying, no, actually, this other thing is the insurrection, and the insurrection is not the insurrection. But here, I do have a bonus one as well, because I was thinking about this. Do you remember the 2018 midterm elections and what were the Republicans and Donald Trump running on? They were running on the idea that the United States was being invaded Mm -hmm. uh, by a caravan, uh, you know, of hordes of, you know, like illegal migrants who were, you know, going to storm into the country. Don't believe the truth. Believe what I tell you is the truth. The caravans, you know, the coverage, the hysteria disappeared literally the day after the election. Just quickly on that, I still remember, I think it was 2017, it might have been 2018, everything kind of blends together for me in that period of time. Donald Trump gave a speech to to veterans of foreign wars in which he said, your quote made me think of it, he said something like, I'm paraphrasing, but don't believe what you see don't believe what you hear, only believe what I tell you. Exactly. I mean, if you don't have a better example of gaslighting than that, That's right. I mean, that, literally, what you're seeing and hearing isn't actually what's happening. It, only I can tell you what's happening. It's remarkable. Are we suggesting, I mean, obviously there's many who engage in gaslighting, which is why yes. it can become effective the, the scale it is, but I'm struck by the fact that there is a theme of Trump, and in part because I wonder if gaslighting has become effective because of the platform and the messenger. Normally it's the idea of, you know, don't kill the messenger. Now it's the idea of, well, you add a level of gravitas and credibility because, hey, it's, yes. it's coming from the person we call the leader of the free world. Right. Yep. Well, and he took it to a whole new art form, right? I think, and, and, it, yes. and we, because if you think about it, it was really 
post-2016 that we were talking about gaslighting, talking about not just lying, but the fact that, yes, he was telling people, what I'm going to tell you on my Twitter feed is the real truth. Right. And remember, you would see he would tweet something. The White House would put some, a different statement mm-hmm. out. But he would always say, no, no, that's the, that's the thing to watch for. So, I mean, he really took it to a whole new place. Well, I'm telling you, just in case you're curious, and of course you are, there are other <laughs> top words of 2022. Here they are. Oh, I have a favorite yes. of these. Oligarch one of is one. Uh, Omicron. Of course. Codify, by the way. Mm. LGBTQIA. Sentient. Oh. My favorite of this, oh, yeah. is Queen Consort, Raid, and there's Lomi. How did so Lomi? You want to know why? Oh, because we're still on. mad Wordle. about Wordle. Wordle. Oh, Wordle. 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 Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm a crossword puzzle guy. It didn't even occur to me. I was, I was reading through Five that letters, list. Five letters, I was reading through go. that list, and I was like, how did Lomi wow. get on there? Wow. And they're obviously still a little pissed about that one. It's like they had, they had bloke one day, and I was like, okay, well, that's, that's wonderful. But Did you ever get it in one? I won't admit that I didn't on air. Yeah, no, I didn't. I'm that's not just dumb not luck. I mean, that's, it is. Okay, that's fine. dumb luck. Well, you know what? Wordle isn't one. Well, you know what? That's a lot of your favorite words. I agree. I'm smart. surprised Wordle wasn't We are important. Yeah. It is fine, everyone. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, I'm glad to know that these words are here because it does encourage me to think that people are following the news, looking yes. the words up, yes. and becoming a more informed electorate. And that is the most important aspect of this. We joke around about, of course... Um, the, the value and how words matter, but they really, really do. And I don't want to take it lightly. But I also, when you think about words, and you mentioned gaslighting versus lying, there's a story that's out right now that I think is just so heartbreaking because of lies that were apparently told to the parents of a young woman who was killed while on vacation in Mexico. She is from North Carolina. And there are a lot of questions about what exactly led to her death. Well, now Mexican prosecutors are trying to extradite one of the women's so-called friends who is an alleged suspect. And I'm going to talk about that case. It's a very difficult one. Next. Today, sadly, marks exactly one month since 25-year-old Janquela Robinson arrived in San Jose del Cabo, Mexico, with her six college friends. The next day, she was dead. Exact cause of her death, a mystery. Robinson's friends telling her family that she died of alcohol poisoning. But Mexican prosecutors are laying out a very different story. Now, they say Robinson died as a result of a spinal injury sustained in a, quote, direct attack. Her death certificate also classifies her death as accidental or violent, knowing the approximate time between injury and death as just 15 minutes. And in recent weeks, you may have seen a viral video appears to show a physical altercation between Robinson and another person. Now, it's unclear when the video was taken, and CNN is deliberately not showing the video as it is very disturbing. It only shows a portion, a small portion of what has happened. Well, now Mexican authorities are seeking to extradite one of Robinson's friends on the trip. And I hate even using the firm, the word friends here, given the, the um, things we're saying right now. But that person that has been called a friend as a suspect in the case. Robinson's mother, Salamandra, Salamandra excuse me, spoke to CNN earlier today, saying the FBI has reached out to the family but hasn't been able to share very many details. She also described her final conversation with her beloved daughter, Shanquella. 
when I spoke with her, she she seemed to be pretty happy. You know, she was laughing and talking and say a chef was getting ready to cook them some tacos. And um, I say, well, okay, enjoy yourself. Love you. I will talk to you tomorrow. And I never spoke with her again. It's heartbreaking to hear that. And for more, I want to bring in senior CNN law enforcement analyst, Andrew McCabe. Andrew, I'm, I'm really glad you're here because this, I mean, this story, it's so disturbing what's it happened really to this is. young woman. Um, I've seen this viral video. I am a mother myself. Mm-hmm. And I just cannot imagine what that would have been like for her in that room, let alone for her family to hear about what may have happened. And when we hear about who might be held responsible, my immediate thought goes is extradition and how sure. that works. Can you help to elaborate on what that would look like? I mean, a U.S. citizen being extradited to Mexico, is that possible? It is possible. And it's, I would say, maybe even likely under this scenario. So let's remember that uh, any nation would conduct their own investigation, as the Mexican authorities have done here. They have an indictment. Unfortunately, that indictment only allows them to arrest people inside Mexico. They believe that the person they're seeking is in the United States, so they make an extradition request to the United States. We have an extradition treaty in place with Mexico that allows the exchange of citizens to face uh, criminal prosecution. Mm. There's some things that they'll have to prove in, or, or assert in their, in their application. They'll have to show that it's, she, this person is, is to be extradited to face a crime that is also a serious crime in the United States. It's not a political uh, persecution of some sort. They're also going to have to put a lot of facts in that request mm. to make a, a prima facie case that you know, shows that they, can, they, they have a good likelihood of proving the case against this person. Um, and under those circumstances, I think uh, extradition might very well happen in this case. And we've done this before. I mean, cases involving um, drug arrests or potential. Right. This is a common practice in terms of being able to extradite. The fact that these are, might be two U.S. citizens, of course, Young Shanquella and whoever it is is being extradited or thought to be extradited. Is there a federal law involved? We're talking about a U.S. citizen committing a crime against another U.S. citizen abroad. There is. 18 U.S.C. uh, 1119 is a a federal statute that makes it a crime for a U.S. person to kill another U.S. person in a foreign location. But the trick here is that murder is only prosecuted at the federal level when that murder was committed in conjunction with with another federal crime. Mm -hmm. So typically the United States doesn't step in and prosecute someone for committing a murder overseas if it was just a simple simple homicide. And in fact, they won't prosecute in the United States if the foreign government has shown an inclination or a, a willingness to prosecute it locally, which we can assume is happened here because, of course, they've filed an extradition request. Could the U.S. be a bit of a backstop? I know the way that state prosecutions, state federal prosecutions usually act. I mean, the idea, if a foreign government decides or they may fail in their prosecution for whatever reason. That's right. Um, we have double jeopardy here, of course, where you cannot have two bites at the proverbial apple and charge twice for the same crime if there has been a failure to convict or otherwise. But I wonder in the sense of two different countries, if Mexico says, you know what, we're not going to prosecute, is it likely the U.S. could say, never mind, if they have a federal hook? 
I think it's possible that that could happen. So I think you describing them, the, the possibility of a U.S. prosecution as a backstop is a good way to characterize it. I think it's likely the, the, for even for political reasons, because extradition requests are unavoidably political. So we typically file extradition requests, and we've been very successful in getting high-level criminals from Mexico returned to the United States for you know, uh, drug cartel leaders and drug kingpins and things like that. So now the tables are turned, and the Mexicans have made that request of us, I think, to some degree, uh, politically, we are, um, you know, we're in a tight spot here. We're going to have to kind of stand up and deliver on our side of the extradition treaty bargain. Mm. However, if that prosecution fails in Mexico, double jeopardy would likely not prohibit the U.S. from going forward with their own prosecution here because of the concept of separate sovereigns. So, uh, you know, that's always the, the, the same idea that allows the federal government to prosecute a crime in the United States after a state government has prosecuted the same same crime, since they're separate sovereigns, that's not uh, that's not prohibited. The right person to talk about this really unfortunate tragedy, and of course, I'm sure you'll be looking ahead, as will I. The role of this video, the evidence oh, that may no be contained doubt. in it, who saw it, who sent it, who failed to intervene, who might be accessories after the fact. How much evidence is embedded in that video? Mm-hmm. It's going to show, you know, who owned the device that it was taken on, time, place, location. All that information is embedded in that digital file. That thing is a is a, a forensic goldmine. Well, I'll tell you, your so is your book. It's a goldmine. <laughs> it's called The Threat. I mean, That's it's a right. really great one. And just if you, you you're hearing all the information right now, and just the idea of your expertise now being able to be read as well, I appreciate it so much. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. We'll be right back, everyone. All right, everyone, remember this warning from Jeff Bezos, of all people, one of the world's wealthiest people? If we're not in a recession right now, we're likely to be in one very soon. So my advice to people, whether they're small business owners or, you know, is uh, uh, take some risk off the table. If you're an individual and you're thinking about buying a new, you know, large screen TV, maybe slow that down. Keep that cash. See what happens. Too late because it was a good deal. That's okay. But it seems that many Americans aren't listening because this Black Friday, well, it broke records, even amid rampant inflation and a looming recession. Shoppers spent more than, get this figure, more than $9 billion in online Black Friday sales. That's a 2.3% increase from the year before. And driving the surge, electronics, smart home equipment, toys, and well, this wasn't me, exercise gear, but maybe other people bought that. Back with me now, Susan Glazer, Chris Eliza, and Karen Finney. You all laugh, but I, I, I mean, my Peloton's now a hanger. I can't help it. I tried. I was with you for a very long time. I was. I was really there. But I wonder, first of all, are you surprised at all about the amount people are spending? We have gotten so many um, warnings about our economy. What do you think? But remember, uh, Black Friday started on, like, Tuesday night of last week. So if a, if a, so instead of being a 48-hour cycle, it was, like, five days. And actually, last night I was online in anticipation of Cyber Monday, and it was saying, Black Friday ends in 10 hours. <laughs> I thought, okay, so I'm good. There's going to be a deal here one way or the other. It's so. like an election day. It's election, it's election Black week. Friday season. season. It's a season. It's a season. What were so, you buying? So I was trying to decide if I wanted to buy a new bed, and I was trying mm. to see if there were deals. And, of course, then you go down a rabbit hole where you start to think, well, if I get this, and I'm going to need that, and what else is on sale. And Anyway, but I do think that I'm not surprised that the amount is so large, given if we're talking about four or five days 
I think that makes that certainly makes a lot more sense. And it means that the marketing tactic worked. Hmm. Um, I saw a story on CNN.com today that it said the 518 best Cyber Monday. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> by the time I get through the list of the 518 best, it won't be Cyber Monday right, anymore. Right. Um, so I think that there is an element of spending and um, everyone getting their Christmas lights up very, at least, well, I shouldn't say everyone. Everyone in my neighborhood, except for me, because as my wife has pointed out, we don't have them up yet, has their Christmas lights up. I do think there is a desire of people to get back to quote unquote normal. Mm -hmm. That 2019, excuse me, 2020 was effectively lost. We were right in the teeth of the pandemic. 2021, we forget, but was Omicron and sort of everyone had it. I'm speaking metaphorically, but lots and lots of people had it. And now it's 2022, and I think people are ready to have a big celebration again. And and in even to the extent of like continuing that old tradition of spending too much money and mm. having to, you know, pay your credit card back the rest of the year because you spent your money. I mean, I do think there's an element of that. I was in New York City for uh, Thanksgiving, and I will tell you, the, the amount of uh, money moved in through that FAO Schwartz that I was in, the one right at Rockefeller Center, oh, yeah. and it's stunning. Yeah. Stunning to me how, how how much. So I think people are in the mood to get back to normal and spending on this Celebrate Black big. Friday week <laughs> is part of that. So that was you in the viral video of doing the little keeper on the floor My, with Tom yeah, Hanks. Okay, just for the record, just for the record, <laughs> you, there was a line to do that, do yeah, the, yeah, do the big course. thing. And you but were my in kid, it. My 10-year-old wanted to do it, and he got on there and did the gritty, you know, the dance. Uh, yeah, I'm okay. familiar. Yes. He did the gritty on there that, that like, people were, like, applauding. I was like, well, this is great. He's going to be a showman. This is, he's going to be a circus performer because he's, like, thrilled. But, but, yes, we did do that. And, Susan, you in the gritty, did you do it, too? I'm, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> I have waited on that line before. You know, look, I have to say this segment is making me a little anxious because I'm a procrastinator, oh. as many journalists are. And so instead of doing my last-minute chopping on Black Monday, here I am, you know, having a conversation about it. I could be, you know, on my phone buying stuff right now. So we got 15 minutes. I was going to say, you got time. But I do, the one thing is, though, I'm not convinced. We'll see how the numbers shake out, right? But there is also the element of consumers adjusting their behavior. And actually, at a moment Mm -hmm. when people are anxious about inflation and anxious about rising prices, if they're seeking deals, uh, they may be simply shifting more of their spending to this week-long period on the theory that, you know, regular items or any items they were contemplating purchasing, do it now when there's uh, a sale. Yep. I will say there is a trend about how people are they're talking about that they're doing more of the buy now, pay later programs as well mm-hmm. about this. They're buying more gift cards as well, trying to have a, a yep. fixed budget of how they're actually going to allocate their resources and money. So a lot's happening right now. I'm so surprised that Jeff Bezos, I mean, I wonder, I mean, we've, we've given him all our money. I was going to say, that's, how, years, you know, right? that's I mean, how you know you're richer than you need to be when you own a commerce company and you say like, hey, maybe don't spend that much money this year. <laughs> <laughs> that's my wants gosh. you to wait till he raises the It's cool. I'm already up. very rich. Good point. Well, everyone stay with me here. We're coming back in just a few moments. And up next, a new analysis of who's joining Twitter and who may be leaving Twitter since Elon Musk took over the site just last month. Speaking of gazillionaires. Now, a 
new look at Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. A Washington Post analysis shows high-profile Republican members of Congress gaining tens of thousands of followers in the first few weeks of Musk's reign, while Democrats experienced a decline. Susan Glasser, Chris Saliza, and Karen Finney are all back with me to discuss right now. I mean, this, this new... There was a Washington Post headline that had this piece um, talking about the very issue. And here's what they analyzed. On average, Republicans gained 8,000 followers and Democrats lost 4,000. They also analyzed from data from ProPublica's Represent tool, which tracks congressional Twitter activity. Um, as an example, they had Senator Elizabeth Warren and Adam Schiff and Bernie Sanders all lost about 100,000 Twitter followers. Interestingly enough, Marjorie Taylor Greene... Jim Jordan, congresspersons from Ohio and Georgia, respectively, gained more than 300,000 each. Does that surprise you? Not, what does it say? Not really, because um, I think two things are happening. One, conservatives are flocking back to Twitter under their belief that Elon Musk is more aligned with their views. And, and I'll say Elon Musk has said he would likely support Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, for president. Mm-hmm. So there, at the same time, a lot of Democrats who are unhappy with how Musk is running this and unhappy with his politics are abandoning the the site. So you're getting both things happening at the same time. And I think it's a double whammy and it adds up. Also, given the erratic behavior, I've seen lots of posts of people saying, here's where you can find me when Twitter, you know, Mm -hmm. crashes and burns. When it ends. When it ends, right? And so I do think that's the other thing is that people are decreasing their usage. But the other thing that's happening, I think we have to take into consideration Given that we don't, the the sort of guardrails have been taken off of Twitter. So as you said, more Republicans flocking to Twitter and the kinds of people who might have, if you're doing hate speech, if you're, you know, what might have been classified as hate speech or out of bounds previously is now okay. So you've got more people joining and those are folks that are going to want to hear what Marjorie Taylor Greene has to say, frankly. I'm wondering if you guys have decreased your usage as a result of what's happening. Have you found a change? I think so. I mean, I think there's such a concern, again, uh, you know, that at any moment uh, this thing has become perilous. You fired all the staff. You you know, like nobody knows if there's a, you know, a major technical challenge, what's going to happen to this platform. And, you know, there's been... Our security of your data. Absolutely. I mean, look. Twitter was a polluted public space before. It's now, a, you know, become more polluted. But I, I'm thinking about, you know, its importance and utility as, you know, a part of our, you know, public Absolutely. political discourse. And, right, like it's the classic thing. Like, you know, if it didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. I know there are various attempts to do that. There's a new startup post where you see, you know, I think they have a waiting list of like 150,000 people. You have people talking about this other, you know, platform, Mastodon, but then that's too complicated. The problem is, is that it has become many things, but one of the things that Twitter is, is a very, an invaluable tool for the spreading of real-time information. You know, I'm thinking about following the war in Ukraine uh, Mm -hmm. and all the people who are posting there, you know, and it's invaluable again to see uh, what's happening in real time. Uh, protesters uh, in Iran are, you know, bypassing uh, uh, using VPNs in order to get on Twitter in order to communicate uh, and to get the message out. Instances, right? Exactly. For help to exactly. Treat. And wow. this is, I think, the thing that's at risk by what appears to be this vanity exercise on the part of, uh, you know, a, a wealthy man mm-hmm. with a Twitter habit. As Susan was talking, I wrote down, this is sort of how I feel. You can't live with it. You can't live without it Mm -hmm. in in some way, that that's sort of the relationship I feel like I have with it. The toxicity 
Elon Musk didn't invent the toxicity on Twitter. The toxicity has been there. Um, I think he's given more leeway for that yeah. to grow. Um, but the thing that I was thinking about how my use, usage has changed is I'm more wary of everything that's out there because of the questions about verification. It just seems, you know, as a journalist where you're trying to get, is this actually fill-in-the-blank congressman who has right. released this state? Is this actually Mitt Romney who has released a statement? Or is it something that looks a lot like Mitt Romney? I think that's where I'm, it, it's made me even more wary of, is this information good? And to Susan's point, you do use it yeah. as an in-the-moment information source. So, it, it, you know, it, it takes away from that a little bit. Justifiably so, everyone. Guess what? This conversation is not going to be over. I, I have a feeling it will continue in the days to come. But thank you for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.